We're going to start in James chapter 4 this morning. Familiar passage of scripture. James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. We all know that Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble for itself. But this passage in James is way more intense than it gets credit for. James says, making plans, business plans or travel plans or retirement plans or whatever, without consulting the Lord is pride. We generally wouldn't see that as being arrogant, but that's what he says. Because we are so out of control of what happens that assuming we know what's going to happen tomorrow is actually arrogance against God. If you don't consult the Lord and ask, is that what you want me to do? Uh, But it's even more intense than that. Look what James says. Instead, we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. That's how completely out of control we are about our own future. James says, assuming you will be alive tomorrow is arrogant. Because you can do nothing about that. That's really intense. Assuming we will be alive tomorrow is arrogant. It's not generally how we see a definition of arrogance. But thoughtlessly assuming I'm going to have this plan and this plan and this activity without going to the Lord and asking, am I even going to be here tomorrow? Essentially, you know the message, it's live every day like it's your last, which is good advice. But Ecclesiastes 5.18, a phrase in the middle of the verse says, during the number of the days of your life that God gives to you. There's a number of days that God has given to each one of us, and we don't know if today's that last one. Psalm 39, David says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Remind me that my days are numbered. I just want to take out that phrase that God has numbered our days. He says he has, and then David says, I need reminded that that's true. That's what I'm here to do for you this morning. And it's not not a depressing or even a comforting message. I I want to put bold faith in you by the time we're done here that remembering the number of our days uh, is, is a good thing. In God's sovereignty, God has allotted each one of us a number of days, and it's all diff- every one of us is different, and you know that. You know everyone lives a, num- a different number of days, and God says, I picked that number for you. I don't know why some people get less than others. I don't know why some people seems to be easier or harder, and in his sovereignty, he has picked that number, and that's it. And what this verse does not mean when David says, God, remind me that my life is short, What he does not mean is YOLO. (laughs) He does not mean you only live once, so party it up. 
uh, got to get everything you got to get and, and spend all you want to spend and do everything you want to do. Let's make sure life's short. You only live once. No, you don't only live once. You live twice. And this life is to prepare for eternity. And it is very, very short. And any day might be our last one. We've got to know, are we ready to meet God? Is there any unfinished business in your heart? Have you forgiven everyone that needs forgiven? Have you asked forgiveness of everyone you need to ask forgiveness of? Is there anything he's told you to do that you haven't done yet? Your life is a breath. And you do not know when your number is up. So David says, God, remind me that my days are numbered and that my life is fleeting. And when you're 12 or 19 or 25, life seems long it's gonna just going to take forever. The oldest people in the room is like, you know. No, it flies by. So Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days is not, uh, you only live once, so party it up. Make sure you get everything done you want to get done. It is, Lord, teach me to realize my days are numbered so that I live wisely so that I prepare for eternity, so that I don't leave anything undone in my heart or in anyone else's heart toward me. We've only got a few days to get it right with God. Don't leave anything unfinished. But God has numbered our days. That's where I just want to hang out for a moment. God has a number. And I don't know, again, I don't know why he picks a short number for some and a longer number for others. Those kind of questions won't be, asked, won't be answered until Judgment Day. The Bible is full of those types of questions. Why do people die young? Why do the wicked people prosper and, and righteous people suffer? Um, why do the good die young? I mean, that's not Bible, but that, the idea is in the Bible, for sure. I don't know. I'm not here to address that. I'm just here to tell you that you have a very specific individual number of days that God picked for you before he made you in your mother's womb. He knew exactly how long you would live and every day in between. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. He, this is speaking of Jesus. He shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came to set us free from being afraid of dying because that's slavery. Have you not seen in the last year and a half a lot of people being slaves to stupid because they're afraid to die? Jesus sets us free from the fear of dying. We should have no fear of dying. Not just because we know what's on the other side of eternity, but because we know God has picked the day when it will happen. And look at this verse. Look what it says. Jesus came and destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Until Jesus came out of the grave, the devil owned death and got to pick when people died. But since the empty tomb... The devil is not in charge of when anybody dies. Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. Hello. So my good news to you this morning is that the devil can't shorten the number of your days because he's not in charge. He has no power of death and he lost his key. He dropped it somewhere and Jesus picked it up. The devil has had the power of death, but he doesn't anymore. God determines the number of our days, and the devil can't shorten your life. He can't touch you without Jesus' permission. We know that from the story of Job, and we know that when Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I have prayed that your faith would not fail. 
So whatever problems come our way from the devil, we can know that God gave him permission to do it. That doesn't mean God wants that problem to have victory over you. It's, it's for you to defeat it. It's not an excuse for you to just accept your problem as God's will. It's, it's God teaching you faith, that your faith will not fail. Hello. All right, all right. The devil can't shorten your life. He can't touch you without God's permission. And Jesus said, you can't add one day to your life, one, not even one hour. So when, the, when God's number is up, you cannot do anything to lengthen that number. And until that number is up, you are immortal. You cannot be touched. Oh, now, come on. That was way more exciting than that. <laughs> the devil cannot kill you early. He cannot touch you. Without God's permission, no one can lengthen the days that God has attributed to us, and the devil can't shorten them. Until God is done with you, you're untouchable. And when he's done, you can't extend that time by one hour. So the next picture is Stonewall Jackson, general in the Civil War. And he was a preacher before the war, strong Christian, and during battle, when the musket balls are flying and the cannonballs are flying and all of his men are on their bellies or on their knees or behind trees and they're shooting at the enemy, Jackson was famous for always, he's on his horse with his sword drawn and he's flying back and forth along the line of men shouting scripture at them while they're shooting their guns and bullets are filled the air. All of the other generals on both sides would go to the back when the battle was happening and Jackson would be right up at the front on his horse, riding back and forth, sucking on a lemon. He would, he would put a half a lemon in his mouth before a battle, and he would suck on the lemon um, while he's shouting scripture and waving his sword and cheering on his men and trying to inspire them to fight. And not, don't, don't retreat. Don't back up. One of his uh, adjutant generals asked him, Jackson, why do you go to the front on your horse? Why don't you go to the back? At least get off your horse and stand behind your men. You're, you're up higher than everybody else where everybody can see you and you're going to get shot at. This is a direct quote. God has set the day of my death. Until then, I am as safe on the battlefield as I am at home in bed. If all men believed this, all men would be equally brave. God has set the day of my death. Until then, I am as safe on the battlefield as I am at home in bed. If all men believed this, all men would be equally brave. You should be completely free from the fear of dying because Jesus is victorious and you can't stop it or delay it. In fact, James says, every night you ought to pray, Jesus, am I even going to be alive tomorrow? And if I am, what do you want me to do? Oh, you cannot change that number. You cannot do anything about it. And the devil can't hurry it up. He can't do anything about it. You are immortal until the moment God calls you home. So uh, Keith Moore is a, a preacher minister that I used to listen to a lot. And he was telling a story of being on a mission trip in Central America where there was some sort of guerrilla civil war going on. They were in a particular building. I don't know much about the story. But in a particular building and a firefight breaks out in the street right next to the wall of their building. And guns blazing, bullets flying through the windows and through the plaster walls. Uh, and they're all just laying down on their stomachs. And if you said for about an hour, there's this shootout in the street. 
right across the wall from where they're at. And he said, we just sang praises the whole time. He said, I was not afraid at all because I knew without any doubt at all the Lord had told me to come on this trip. So he said, I figured either one of two things. Either this is my day, and if I go, praise God. Paul says to depart and be with Christ is far better. So he said, either this is my day, and I'm about to meet Jesus, which is really exciting, or I am untouchable because I cannot die here. God told me to come on this trip, and he's got something for me to accomplish, and I'm not going to die until it's my day. See, I was not worried the least bit about getting shot. That's our attitude. I talked to you several weeks ago about place matters, be at the right place at the right time. He said, while the bullets are flying over us, he said, I realized I'm exactly in the will of God. I know that I am. I'm supposed to be here. He said, I'm safer here than if I had disobeyed and stayed home. Proverbs 16.9 says, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19.21, people can make all kinds of plans, but only the Lord's plan will happen. Only the Lord's plan will happen. I don't mean that God has planned everyone's sins against you or that he planned for you to sin and blow up that situation. I just mean that in the big picture of things, only God's plan will happen as you are submitted to him and obeying him and walking in the steps he's given you. Only God's plan will happen. Proverbs 20, 24 says the Lord directs our steps. So why try to know everything along the way? The Lord directs our steps, so why try to know everything along the way? You need to get a Sharpie and write that on your steering wheel so that you see that every day. Why are you trying to figure it out ahead of time? You, you're not going to. You can't. You will not know what is going to come. But what you can know is I am invincible until the day God calls me home. My life is not my own anyway. When I was baptized, I gave it up. I died with Christ. In the waters of baptism, I have no reason to fear anything. Come on. So with apologies to those of you who have heard this story 12 times, there's a lot of people in the room that haven't. So spring of 1998, Sarah and I have been married three, four months, and I'm on my way to my, I don't know, 12th or 15th job interview in a few months. Uh, I graduated college in the middle of the school year with a teaching certificate, so I couldn't get a teaching job, so I'm looking for something else to get us through till the fall semester begins, and, and I couldn't get a job to save my life. 23 years old, we're newly married, she's in grad school, and I think the world is ending. Like, God, we're growing old here, and you're not listening to our prayers, and life is passing us by. I mean, it's, it's hilariously stupid. <laughs> It's so hilariously stupid how panicked I was at 23 years old without a job for two or three months, and I think the world is ending. But I was pretty distressed on the way to this job interview in Little Rock, and uh, I had some worship music on, on the cassette player in the car, and, and I, I'm praying, and I began to cry because of the song, and I had to pull over and just stop and let God have it. I just let him have it. I, it was just, I was stressed out. And and this is not a picture of the road I was on, but it was a scenario like this where there's trees on both sides of the road, and the road ahead of me curves away out of sight. And as I'm 
worshiping and praying and crying and complaining. You know, you know the role. You, you, do, you, you all do it. It's all one thing, you know. Uh, I look up and I see Jesus in the road. I, I'm not saying I saw it with my eyes, but call it a vision or just my imagination or whatever, but it was real because it completely changed everything. I saw Jesus standing at the very far end of what I could see, where I could see him, but he could see around the corner. And he's pointing around the corner of the road, and he's jumping up and down, and he's so happy, tears streaming down his cheeks. He's so excited about what he can see in the, down the road that I cannot see. And I, I just, it changed absolutely everything. It was real. I saw the Lord, and he was pointing out my future, and he was giddier excited than any toddler on Christmas morning. I mean, seriously, it's not an exaggeration. No one in the flesh could be as excited as I saw Jesus, crying, laughing, jumping up and down, giddy with excitement of what he could see that was around the corner that I could not see. He knows our entire future, folks. And he didn't just plan it out, and he, didn't just, he isn't just there caring about us. He's excited. He's giddy excited about our future, what he knows is there. So we have no reason to fear anything. Jeremiah 10, 23, Jeremiah says, I know, O Lord, that, there, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. Jesus tells us where to turn on that road to get to where he knows we can be. Psalm 37, 23 and 24, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. That is supremely reassuring that not even my stupidity can mess up God's plan for my life. Though I stumble, I will not fall because the Lord holds me by the hand. If you go sinning on purpose and you're an intentional hypocrite, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're genuinely repenting and wanting to do right and obey the Lord and you're doing your best and you're doing the best you know how to do, then you'll eat not even your own ignorance, not even your own sin, not anybody else's sin can derail God's plan for your life. Even when you stumble, you will not fail. The Lord will hold you by the hand because he has a purpose and he has a plan and he has a destiny and he will get you there. As long as you stay humbly obedient, he will get you there. Regardless of what anybody else does to you, regardless of what you lose in this life or have to go through to get there, or even your own choices, your sin is not more powerful than his grace. As long as you're truly repentant, your sin is not more powerful than his grace. I mean, there are people who just completely quit repenting and just not going to obey God at all, and they're going to eat the fruit of their own choices. But if you're truly wanting to know the Lord and obey Him, not even your own mistakes or your own intentional wrong choices. You cannot derail the Lord's plan. That's so reassuring. So in Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is good and important for us to know that God is in charge of our lives not only the steps we take and where we go and what happens, but also how long it is. And that we have absolutely nothing to fear because he's already picked the day when we, this body will collapse and this ticker stops and our spirit goes to Jesus. That's going to happen for every single one of us. 
And he has picked that day, and we have absolutely no reason to fear it, and there's nothing we can do to extend it. There's nothing that the devil or stupid people can do to shorten it. It's just, it's there. But we've seen a lot of fear and a lot of worry and a lot of overreaction in recent months. People being afraid of a virus or economic collapse or shortages in the stores and all these things that people who don't believe that God is in charge of all of this and has it all planned out, then they're afraid. So I want to read to you something that C.S. Lewis wrote during World War II. So he's writing to the people of London who are living through the bombings that the Nazi German planes would fly over London at night and drop bombs. And so they all had to go into their basements or even in the subway tunnels to sleep every night. Because if you stayed at home, a bomb might just randomly, i put that in quotes, but randomly strike your house and, and you would die. And You can put it in our current day context. But uh, basically what he says is, the fact that the Germans are dropping bombs on us does not increase your chances of death even 1%. Because you already have a 100% chance of dying. The fact that bombs are falling out of the sky does not increase your chances of dying at all. Zero. You are going to die. It's guaranteed. Well, you put that in the context of corona or anything else in our modern world, our chances of dying have not increased at all in the last year and a half. So here's what Lewis says. The war creates no new situation. It simply aggravates our present human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Before two years ago, you probably didn't give much thought to the fact of numbering your days. When there's a, a virus around or the threat of military problems or terrorism or whatever, you begin to give thought to the fact that your days are numbered. But Lewis says it's not new. You, they were always numbered. And he says there is no question of death or life, only a question of this death or that. It could be a machine gun now or cancer 40 years later. Remember, he's writing during World War II. The question before us is not, am I going to die of COVID? It's, am I going to die of COVID or something else? Back to C.S. Lewis. We were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupidest of us knows it. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we've all been living and must come to terms with it. We are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. We are disillusioned. And not a moment too soon. I hope that you have been greatly disillusioned in the last year and a half. It's good to have your illusions ripped off so that you see the truth. Because before two years ago, you probably had some just completely unconscious faith in the supply chain. That whenever you went to the grocery store, stuff would be there. You probably just had some unconscious faith in the healthcare system. That whatever comes, well, the doctors and nurses will take care of me. And you had some unconscious faith in the education system and in science and whatever else that our illusions are being ripped off. And it's good. And it's God. Because, Lewis says, what does the war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us are going to die. And the percentage cannot be increased. 
If active service in the military does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable combination of circumstances would? Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. So he's writing World War II. I'm putting it in the context of 2021 America. Our situation is forcing us to realize we're going to die. The economy is going to fail. There will be war. There will be disease. And it isn't going to get easier or better. But none of that increases your chances of dying because you're already at 100%. So what am I telling you? I'm telling you, have faith. Because until the day number of your days is up, you can't be touched. But Mitch, what if I get sick? Okay, either the number of your days are up or you will get over it. Peace that passes your understanding. God has numbered my days. It's good to be disillusioned because we thought we'd probably all just go ahead going to school and ball games and going to work and now we're not sure if our job is going to be on the line in a couple months or we're not sure if our kids are going to be, go to, be able to go to school or we're not sure if we're all going to be forced to be poisoned or, or whatever it is that you're worried about or there's not going to be any meat or gasoline or electricity. Peace. God has numbered our days. And you will live and not die and you will declare the goodness of the Lord. And when your day is up, you can't delay it by an hour. You're going home. Amen. To depart this world and be with Christ is far better. The death of a Christian is never a tragedy. Never. It may be heartbreaking. It may be a big loss. But it is not a tragedy. It is promotion. So Lewis says it is very good that we are faced with imminent death because James said it's always imminent. Every night you go to bed, you ought to pray, Lord, am I even going to be alive tomorrow? And if I am, what do you want me to do? That's always true. Hello? But a, a virus floating around or abusive government or foreign invasion or terrorists coming across the border or whatever else just forces us to actually look it in the eye and realize this, this is not going to go well. But that's not new. There's a book by Sheldon Van Alken titled A Severe Mercy, a former student of C.S. Lewis's, he and his wife both. And she went through uh, cancer treatment and eventually died. The book is Sheldon and C.S. Lewis writing letters back and forth to each other. In that series of letters, at some point, C.S. Lewis tells Sheldon, he says, I think God gave you and Danny a, a severe mercy because most of us don't know when we're going to die, but it became apparent that she was going to. He said, so you had months of time to say what needs said to do what needs done, to pray what needs prayed, to confess what needs confessed, to ask forgiveness of what needs forgiven. 
and C.S. Lewis called it uh, God's severe mercy. I, I say the current situation in America is God's severe mercy. He's awakening us to reality by pulling off a lot of illusions that we had about our own systems and that they would always just keep going on. And it's apparent now that they're not going to. And so we can read James 4 and he says, it's bragging to even assume we're going to be alive tomorrow. And I know things aren't that desperate for us in those realms, but it's just always true. It's just always true. We don't know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. And that is God's severe mercy that he wakes us up from our fantasy that we're going to work this job and go to this kids' ball games and go to school and we'll retire when we're 65 and drive an RV around the country till I die of a ripe old age of 98. It was never true. I do not mean this morning to um, just be, give you some nice reassuring comfort that God is in control, although that's true, but I want to destroy fear in you and put aggressive faith in the sovereignty of God that I am untouchable while God still has a plan and a purpose for me. And when he doesn't, I'm going home, and that'll be better. But until then, the devil can't touch me. I, nothing can happen that stops God's plan for my life. So don't make any decisions in fear. Do what he says to do, even if it makes no economic sense. Do it. Start that business. Make the investment. Whatever it is, don't give up on life. Well, there is no future. America is doomed and it's all just going to collapse. Live life. Work your job. Paint your house. Buy the motorcycle. <laughs> Whatever. Don't get into a situation where you're so scared for your kids' and grandkids' future that you aren't living. The church did that in the 70s. We're all just going to get raptured out of here any moment. They lived like there was no future. And we got Roe v. Wade. And all the other legal disasters because the church just gave up, thinking we're going to fly out of here at any minute. And so... Satan got to take over the world. Now we're dealing with the fruit of all that. We cannot assume that our kids and grandkids don't have a future. We know it will be harder than our present. Jesus said, until he comes back, war and disease and suffering will increase. But God did not pick them for your day. He picked them for their day. And His grace will match their day. Come on. You and your kids and your grandkids, God has numbered your days and He has a plan and a purpose. He is sovereign over their life and nobody's going to touch them either unless it's God's will. Again, I know there's unanswerable questions there for those of you who've lost loved ones and all of that. I just We have to wait till Judgment Day. God explains it all and when He does, we will tell Him He was right. We will tell Him you're just and and righteous in all of your judgments. Everything you did and everything you didn't do was exactly right. We cannot just assume that it's all doomed. So why, why invest? Why start that business? I don't, why, why look for a job? There was people even in Acts that did that. They, Jesus is coming back so soon, they didn't work a job, and Paul says they were busybodies going from house to house. 
and I say all this to say, it isn't going to get better. We've, we've got to quit either living in fantasy that we'll get back to 2018 or 19, or that it's all just going to end in a, in a flash a month from now. Neither of those is going to happen. We've got to be people who bring Jesus into the situation that is today. Not worrying about being tomorrow, not being scared of what's coming tomorrow, just bringing Jesus into today. It's going to get worse. Jesus promised that we've been in what he called the last days for 2,000 years, and until he returns, it will just, darkness will increase. Inventing new ways to sin. In the church, things can get better and better and more glorious, and, we, and it will. It really will, but the world situation is just going to continue to get worse. And one of the things that's going to happen is more people will die than ever before. I don't have time to go into the whole story, but the story of Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan River to go attack Jericho, where they marched around the city and the walls come tumbling down. Okay, they have to cross the Jordan River. Not only do they have to cross this, this river to get to Jericho, but the river is flooded. This is Joshua 3. 15, the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. The Jordan River in Scripture always represents death. It's why the Israelites had to cross from the wilderness through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. It's a picture of us leaving this world, going through death and into eternity, into heaven, into the Promised Land. Amen? Yes? Jordan River is death because Jesus was baptized there, that he had to be baptized in death. To fulfill his call. It's why Jesus had John the Baptist baptize all of his disciples in the Jordan River because it represents death. Uh, they had to die to follow him. We have to give up our life, take up our cross and follow him and so on. The Jordan River always represents death. And Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, he said, the harvest is the end of the age. Joshua tells us the Jordan River overflows its banks during the harvest. At the end of the age, Death will flood outside of its boundaries. Not just because there's more people alive now than ever before, and that will keep increasing, but because of what Jesus told us, disease and war and violence and natural disasters. In the story of Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, they need a way to get across this flooded river. Here's a, a river that's normally maybe only 20 or 30 yards wide, now it's a couple hundred yards wide. And they don't have any way to get across to Jericho where God has told them to go. And Joshua asks, what do we do, Lord? He says, have the priest take up the Ark of the Covenant and wade into the water. The Ark of the Covenant always represents Jesus. The priests picked up the Ark of the Covenant and put it on their shoulders and they walked into the water. And when they did, God rolled the waters back and they crossed on dry land. It's not the same as parting the Red Sea. But they wade into the water and the waters roll back and, and they cross on dry land. G the Ark of the Covenant is Jesus. The priests of God, that's us. I told you that last week. You're a holy priesthood. Pick up Jesus and wade into the flood of death. Come on. Our job is to pick up Jesus, put him on our shoulder, and wade into the flood of death. Whatever that means to you, if you're a nurse or a school teacher or an evangelist or whatever that is to you, you pick up Jesus and you wade into the flood that everybody else is terrified and people are dying and they're scared and bad things are happening and we pick up Jesus and like, here's Jesus, he's going to roll it back. 
1854, Charles Spurgeon, preacher in London, Charles Spurgeon, 1854, there was a cholera outbreak in London, a real epidemic, not an exaggerated one, where people are dying every day, hundreds of people even a day in just the city of London were dying. And this is what Spurgeon wrote about his experience during those months. During the epidemic of cholera, I had many engagements in the country. I gave them up that I might remain in London to visit the sick and the dying, and I felt that it was my duty to be on the spot in such a time of disease and death and sorrow. First thing I want to point out is he said, I had preaching engagements in the country, but I didn't leave the city. He did not go to the country where it's safe. He didn't run to the mountains with his stockpiled ammo and his gold coins. He stayed where death had flooded its banks. And he said, it was my duty. Duty is a four-letter word to most Americans now. Who makes decisions based on duty instead of what's right for me? His church did not stop worshiping. He said the, the records of their church continued to receive new members and pursue inactive members. They observed the Lord's Supper. They practiced all the normal activities of church. Um, as death raged all around the city, Spurgeon said that he found that people were very receptive to the gospel. He said, this is a quote again, If there will be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect that when I first came to London, how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terrible. There was little scoffing then. He said, in 1854, when I had scarcely been in London 12 months, the neighborhood in which I had labored was visited by Asiatic cholera, and my congregation suffered from its inroads. Family after family summoned me to the bedside of the smitten, and almost every day I was called to the grave. That's a real epidemic when one person knows somebody dying every day. That's not happening now. I said that's not happening now. You don't all know somebody personally every day. This is, this is real. He said, every day I'm summoned to the, fam to the bedside by family of people who are sick, and almost every day I have to go visit a burial, do a funeral. He said, one night I went home and was called away again. That time I saw a young woman. She was also in the last extremity of life, but it was a beautiful, beautiful sight. She was singing, though she knew she was dying. And she was talking to those around her, telling her brothers and sisters to follow her to heaven, bidding her father goodbye, and all the while smiling as if it were her wedding day. He said, all day and sometimes all night long, I went about from house to house and I saw men and women dying, and oh, how glad they were to see my face. When many were afraid to enter their houses, lest they should catch the deadly disease, we who had no fear about such things found ourselves most gladly listened to when we spoke of Christ. Come on. Your coworkers, your students, your classmates desperately need to hear that you are not afraid and you're speaking of Jesus. I don't mean you're not afraid because the statistics aren't scary. I mean you're not afraid because... Jesus. He said, At first I gave myself up with youthful strength to visit the sick and was sent from all corners 
of the district by persons of all ranks and religions, but soon I became very weary in body and sick at heart. My friends seemed falling one by one, and I felt or fancied, that means imagined. I imagined that I was sickening like those around me. A little more work and weeping would have laid me low like the rest. I felt that my burden was heavier than I could bear, and I was ready to sink under it. How many of you are exhausted? <laughs> Stress everywhere, exhaustion, anger everywhere. If you're not, you don't work at a hospital or a school. It's, it's real, folks. People are really at the end of their rope. This is where Spurgeon found himself. He said, I was returning mournfully home from a funeral when, as God would have it, my curiosity led me to read a paper which had been posted up in a shoemaker's window on the great Dover Road. It did not look like a trade announcement, so he walked over and looked at it, and he said it was in good, bold handwriting these words. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall be no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come near thy dwelling. Psalm 91, if you don't know that. She said, the effect on my heart was immediate. Faith appropriated the passage as my own. I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. There's that word. You're immortal. He said, I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil and I suffered no harm. The providence which moved the tradesman to post that verse in his window, I gratefully acknowledge. And in remembrance of its marvelous power, I adore the Lord my God. The Christian needs not dread any sickness for he has nothing to lose but everything to gain by death. Amen. Death is touching some people that we know. Um, our family alone, just this week, three people that we know of. A very dear friend lost his sister this week. The family in our school district um, lost their dad. And we know of another family who's, if it hasn't happened yet, it's, it's days away. Um, and, and there are others, and it's, it's real. People are really hurting. We got to pick up Jesus and wade into the flood. We cannot be afraid. And we must bring Jesus into the flood of death. And sometimes we'll see healings if it's not God's day for that person. Other times they, they might pass away, but we're the only ones with any hope or comfort. Whatever the situation is, and whoever you're living with or dealing with or whoever you know, we've got to bring Jesus and not fear or anger or politics. Because it's real. It is a real flood. But for, our very, for ourselves, we've got to understand that God has a plan, He has a destiny, He has a purpose, there is a reason for your existence. And God has numbered your days. If Jesus isn't actually your real Lord and you aren't living His life, then He can't save you. Because you haven't asked Him to be your Savior. So the devil can pick the day of your death. But if you truly are in good conscience serving the Lord and he is your actual savior, you're untouchable until he's done with you. I don't mean bad things won't happen. I don't mean you won't get sick. I don't mean that difficulties won't come your way, but you will live through them. And you will not just survive, you will come through the other side like Job with stronger faith, knowing God better, with something to give away, and serve the Lord. And when it is your time, 
Going home is far better to depart and be with Christ. So, live like you're immortal. Quit making excuses. Stop being afraid. Make plans for the future after you ask God if you're going to be there. <laughs> okay, now I know, um, I know that some of you are thinking, I don't like you using that word immortal, Mitch, invincible, because, or you just mean I can just go jump off a cliff. And that won't shorten the number of my days. Okay, well, Jesus addressed that very thing, you know. The devil tempted him to jump off the temple. And the devil used true scripture to tempt Jesus. Because the devil says, the Bible says, you will not dash your foot against a stone. So the temptation is, he's tempting Jesus, is you can jump off the temple and the angels will show up with a trampoline and you will not hit the ground and everyone will know that you are God and you won't have to go to the cross. That's the temptation for Jesus, that the devil is using true scripture to tempt him with. Jesus replies with scripture, you shall not test the Lord your God. Meaning you don't do something stupid to test the promise of God. Hello? All right, so just to clarify, because some of you are going to ask this question. Um, Sarah assured me that that was going to be in a lot of minds. So we're going to, let's just, let's just, okay, so you don't go jump off a cliff, okay. But does that mean that parachuting or hang gliding or riding a motorcycle is testing God? Because, uh, you know, they have this reputation of being dangerous. Well, so eight years ago, I totaled my last motorcycle. And I had a fellow pastor tell me, you are tempting God by riding a motorcycle. You need to quit because uh, your church needs you. Well, this guy is pushing 400 pounds. And uh, I told Sarah what he said. I need to quit riding a motorcycle because I'm tempting God. And my church needs me. She said, how about your church needs you to go on a diet because you're tempting God? <laughs> <laughs> What's testing God? I don't know. That's between you and him. Some people are totally fine parachuting. We have a former hang glider in the church who used to jump off Mount Harris and hang glide, and, and I love my motorcycle. Personally, I know more people who have been injured or killed by horses than motorcycles, but maybe some of you think riding a horse is testing God, but uh, a lot of you wouldn't. You're like, that doesn't seem like that's in inherently sinful. Come on. Is, is a fireman or a police officer testing God with their job? A combat soldier is not testing God by being in combat. Come on. We know those are inherently dangerous, but that isn't testing God. You have a number of days. But sure, yeah, you go uh, base jumping without a parachute, and oh, God's going to save me. You know, you're, you're a fool. Um, sure, yes. I am certain the way we most often test God is by what we eat. Seriously. If there's anything we do or don't do, to shorten our lives, it's what we eat and, not, and don't exercise. Way, way more dangerous than a motorcycle. Maybe I'm just justifying my own. <laughs> I'm justifying my own testing God. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, you going on a mission trip to a dangerous place isn't testing God. You being a nurse in ICU where viruses are all around is not testing God. You just do what you have faith to do. Come on. Amen. Amen. You have a number of days. God has a plan and a purpose for those days. As long as you are honestly doing your best to obey and repent when you don't, you will he will fulfill those number of days and you will live your purpose. And when that day comes, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. And why would you want to delay it anyway? 
Until that time, our job is to pick up Jesus and wade into the flood and bring him to the people who are flooded with death. Amen.